Father, thank you for this time of worship. We understand that there are no accidents in your providence and in your plan. You have each one of us here today for worship, for fellowship, for singing your praise, for praying together. And we pray that these means of grace would be powerful in our lives today. Would you shape us, mold us, make us more like our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray for people who've come to our assembly today or listen with us sometime online who are strangers to the saving grace that is found in Christ. And we ask, O oh, Father, that today you would open blind eyes, that you might breathe life into sin-deadened hearts, and that sinners would come to the cross and believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. We ask for all in the name of Christ, amen. So let's look at this series slide again. There it is, this is what we've been looking at. This is message four. We looked at, in the first three weeks, we looked at the new covenant as seen first, as stated first in Jeremiah 31, lengthy passage on the new covenant. Then to Ezekiel 36, lengthy passage on the new covenant. Third message, Hebrews chapter eight, lengthy passage on the new covenant. And we added up from all three of those passages and we found that there are nine characteristics of everybody who's in the new covenant. We found that there are nine ways in which life in the new covenant is not like life in the old covenant. Nine differences, nine discontinuities, if you will. But here's what we're facing today. But the new covenant in all three passages says it's with Israel and with the house of Judah. I will make a new covenant. He's made that through Christ's shed blood. We are in that time of the new covenant and he says, behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's made with them. I want to say for about the third time in the series. So you see, this is not replacement theology. This is a covenant with them. And we get grafted in, Romans 11, with them to, uh, to be part of the one new man, Ephesians chapter 2. So the covenant was made with them. So here's the problem then how come most of them have not believed? How come the majority of Jewish people in Paul's day were not followers of the Messiah who shed his blood? How come most Israeli people today are not believers, even in God for that matter, awful lot of atheism going on among them, and those who do believe in God, for the most part, reject Jesus Christ? How come? He's gonna ask the question, we'll get to it a little bit later, but he, he asks, he answers a question. We can know what he asked. The question is, so has the word of God failed? Like, are you sure you have the gospel? Are you sure you have the word of God? Because it seems to have failed. The new covenant is made with Israel and Judah. They're not believing. What's gone wrong? He's going to answer that question in Romans chapter 9. So this chapter is going to tell us why most Israelis in our day, why most Jewish people in our day are not followers of, are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get to that, I have a mini sermon. Would that be okay? I have a mini sermon before the sermon. It truly is mini. It's got two quick verses in it. I want to preach that mini sermon and then get back to the real sermon. Would that be Okay. Here's the mini-sermon. What are we doing here today? What are you and I? What are we doing here today? Here's one verse, Jeremiah 3 and verse 15. God says, down there in the new covenant, here's something I will do. I will give you shepherds after my own heart. What will they do? 
who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's what new covenant shepherds do. Notice what he does not say. I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will talk a lot about feelings, who will give you little life tips and tell you nice stories about them. Now he says, I'm going to give you shepherds. They're going to feed you with knowledge and understanding. I love you all. I love this church because you love to have it so. Bless you. Here's another verse, second verse in my mini-sermon. John 21, 17, Jesus speaking. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. What are we doing here today? We're seeking to feed the sheep, to feed the sheep with knowledge and understanding. So you're going to have to think a little bit in this sermon. You're going to have to follow along. This one is pretty much about understanding what's going on with God and Israel and answering the question, has the gospel failed? If not, then what's going on? End of mini-sermon. You made it through. All right. Is anybody ready for the real sermon to resume? All right, we're going back to the real sermon. Here we are. So the question on the table is, what happened to Israel? Why don't most of them believe? The new covenant's with them, and they're not in it, most of them. We're going to Romans 9.1, and we're going to start with, I'll put this up, Paul's anguish. Paul's going to talk about this, and it's not just theoretical, it's not just theological, it's heart. He's got anguish for Israel. We ought to have it too, so let's look at his anguish. Paul's anguish for unbelieving Israel, Romans 9.1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying My conscience bears me witness in, you might say, is fortified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I am a man who has learned, and you need to be men and women who learn, to be in touch with what's really going on inside you. What's really, you cross-examine yourself, wait a minute, am I really thinking the truth? Do I really mean what I'm saying? Or am I just blathering stuff? And you have to learn to do that because lies will come out of your heart, and you have to combat them. And Paul says, I know how to do that. I know how to be in touch with what's really true in my soul, and I'm telling you, this is true. Now, why is he making all that point? Because what he's about to say is unbelievable. So he's setting it up to say, look, believe it. I'm telling you the truth. Okay, what comes next? Romans 9, 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for Israel in my heart. This is a heart thing with Paul. It's not just an intellectual thing. This is heart. It's going to be a kind of intellectual message. It's heart. And we ought to approach it with what Paul has here. He has great sorrow. We want to follow him as he follows Jesus Christ. We ought to have great sorrow. What's, what, Pastor Steve, what should be my posture toward unbelieving Israel? Answer, great sorrow. And unceasing anguish. How much sorrow? Not just a little. Great How often do you get anguish? A little pang once in a while? Unceasing in my heart. Let us join Paul in that. Not just for Jewish people, but for Gentile people who are without Christ, who need to come to our Christmas concert. Thought I'd throw that in there. And and hear the gospel. Let us be like Paul. We are moved for lost people around us. What's our disposition toward Unbelieving Israel people, we're moved with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Next, notice Paul's wish. It's going to be unbelievable. His wish for unbelieving Israel. This is why he gave us verse 1. Believe me, I'm telling the truth because you're not going to believe this. Romans 9, 3. For I could wish, 
that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, there's a lot in that verse that needs a little explaining, so sit tight. Here it is. When he says, for I could wish, he's not really wishing. It's I could. There, there is the idea of almost in this. I could almost wish. Can't quite. Why can't quite? Not because of what you think. You think he can't quite because he really doesn't want to go to hell. Well, that's probably true, too, but here's why he can't quite. Number one, if Paul was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brother, well, it wouldn't be for the sake of them. Paul's not Jesus, God in the flesh. Paul can't die for Israel, so it really wouldn't do anybody any good. And furthermore, when he says, I wish I could be cut off from them, he can't be cut off from them. He wrote Romans 8 that tells us nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So he knows this is not within the realm of possibility. It can't happen. He can't be accursed. He's in Christ. And even if he could be accursed, it wouldn't be for Israel because he's not a savior. He's not God in the flesh. It wouldn't do them any good. But he still has this feeling. He still has this, I, I could wish this was possible, man. What? That I myself were accursed. The word accursed is the Greek word anathema. Maybe you've heard of that. Let him be anathema. It says to the Galatians, if anybody preaches a different gospel than I preach, let them be anathema. The word anathema means devoted to destruction. Paul says, oh, I could almost wish that I could be devoted to that destruction. That, that's judgment. That's hell. Almost wish that I could take their place, that I could be accursed, and that I could be cut off from Christ. Now, why does he use those two terms? Here's why. Because that's what they are. He's saying, oh, that I could just take their place, and they'd become believers, and I'd take their place, and I'd be the one cut off from Christ, and I'd be the one accursed. He's, he's describing for us how we should understand their current state of unbelief. They are devoted to destruction. They are anathema, just like all unbelieving Gentiles are anathema. And they are cut off from Christ, just like all unbelieving Gentiles are cut off from Christ. He says, I wish I could do something about it. And notice how he describes them. For the sake of my brothers. Paul doesn't unbrother them. Paul doesn't say, well, they're not believers, so they're no longer my brothers. I'm done with those people. No, no. They're still his brothers. My kinsmen. There's so much talk in our world. There's so much talk in our nation now of ethnicity. Aren't, aren't you tired of ethnicity this and ethnicity that? And these are those ancestral people and these are my ancestral people and who did what and all that. Aren't you tired of all that? Can we just love each other and get along, all right? But Paul says, they are my kinsmen. I do have ethnicity with them. We share DNA. We share blood. We're from the same tribe according to the flesh, and that means something. It does mean something. They're my kinsmen, but notice how he qualifies that. But only, I'm inserting the word only, you get it, but only according to the flesh. So there are kinsmen who are only according to the flesh. We have DNA, but they're not in Christ. They do not have the Spirit of God. They're not regenerate. They're not born again by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're only my kinsmen according to the flesh, not according to the promise, not according to the spirit, not according to the hope of the gospel, not in Jesus Christ. So he greatly qualifies down the sense in which they are still his kinsmen. It's important. It matters. It's there. It's not gone away. But he could almost wish 
It's hard to believe, isn't it? Like, would you almost wish you could be a curse for anybody? I'll tell you the truth, I'm not there. I guess I'm more selfish than Paul. I think you all are too. Hey, raise your hand if you could almost wish. Yeah, there's no hands going up. All right, one went, and then it went back down. So this is telling us how tragic and how horrific it is that God's chosen old covenant people are in this state. Next, let's, he's going to make it even worse. Next, he's going to show us, here's a slide, Israel's great heritage and thus the tragedy of their unbelief. He describes them, Romans 9, 4, and 5. They are Israelites, again, but only according to the flesh, not according to the promise, not according to the Spirit. They're Jews, but they're not true Jews, as the New Testament defines them. And to them belong, what a heritage. My people don't have this heritage. His people did. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. God gave all that to them. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. This is the high point of their heritage, who is God over all, deity, blessed forever. What a heritage. What a people. How tragic, what a shame that they're not believing, that they're not flocking to Christ. I don't have that heritage. My people, my dad's from England, came over here after World War II, met my mom, they got married, here we are. My, so I have to go back to England to go to my dad's ancestors. They were probably worshiping stones and sticks that they carved and stuck in the ground. That was probably my people. Don't, don't make fun of me, it's probably your people too, wherever they were. Most of us in this room are not Jewish as to our ethnicity. What a blessed, blessed people. What an amazing people, and they still are. But the tragedy is, but they're in unbelief. And their great heritage renders the tragedy that more awful. So now we come to a question. I'll put the question up for you. Here's the question. Given that great heritage, why are most of them not in Christ? You've heard me say that before in this message. Here it is again. Has the, and the unstated question that he'll answer next is, has the word of God failed? Is that how we explain their unbelief? Like, is the gospel not really from God? Does the gospel not really have power to save? How come most of them aren't saved? God said, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says, they'll all believe in me from the greatest of them to the least of them. How come then Israel nationally has, has been in unbelief since Paul's time and right down to ours? He's going to answer that. He's doing apologetics. He doesn't want you to doubt the power or the authenticity of the gospel as the word of God. So he's going to explain, here's why they're not all saved. Here's what happened. Here's what went wrong, okay? You tracking with me? All right, thank you. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Really? Are you sure? Because it sure looks like it. How do you explain it? For, here's his explanation. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what's Paul saying? It is one thing to have descent by ethnicity, by DNA, by blood, by flesh, and that's something. They have a great heritage in that. 
But that's one thing. But it's another thing to belong. To belong to Israel, the true Israel, the Israel of God, the people of God, the people that Jesus calls to himself who are saved by his grace and regenerated. It's one thing to be descended from Israel. It's another thing to belong. And, he repeats it, different words, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Huh. So you could be his, you could be his, get it right, but you could be his offspring but you're not necessarily one of his children. That's what Paul's saying. So he's distinguishing. There's offspring, and then there's children. The children believe in the Messiah. The children are of promise. The children have the faith of their father Abraham. But, quotes some Old Testament here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac, the child of promise. The real offspring will be those through Isaac, like Isaac, children of promise. He sums up, in case you're getting your mind confused. He makes it clear. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what has happened here? If you were in Old Testament Israel, you would say, we're going to see this in a moment, and they would say, look, I've got Abraham's blood. I'm seed of Abraham. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm going to heaven. They actually believed, they taught, the rabbis in Jesus' day believed and taught that if you had Abrahamic blood coursing through your veins, that's it. You're going to heaven. It's salvation by blood, but not the blood of Christ. Salvation by blood passed down to you from your forefather, Abraham. And as long as you're in Abraham, you're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. They actually believed that. You could do anything you want. You can be as bad as you want. you got the blood. You're going to be in heaven and not in hell. They believed that. Paul says they're all wrong. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Let me ask you a question. So, Israelis in their unbelief today, Jewish people in their unbelief today, are they or are they not, put your finger on the text, are they or are they not children of God? It's not a trick question. Staring at you right there in the verse, and Paul's teaching you that, well, they are not. Great heritage, but not children of God. They're they're. They're offspring, they have the blood, but they're not children. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. He does more of this in Galatians 4 where he points out it's only those who are believers from ethnic Judaism who are really the children of the promise. So there's Israel according to the flesh and there's Israel according to the spirit. And he's telling us that the Israel according to the spirit, they are the true Israelites. They're the true Jews. They're the ones who have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the word of God hasn't failed. The true Jews have turned to Christ. And the other ones are not the real, are not the true. Do you remember what we saw a few weeks back in Matthew chapter 3? Let me take you there again, because you might not remember. John the Baptist is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Old Covenant Israel. And he says to them, John, I'm sorry, Matthew 3, 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, because they did, we have Abraham as our father. See, they thought that was it. We're in. We got heaven in the bag. Abraham is our father. Jesus tells them, that thing that you say, don't say it because it's wrong. Don't presume 
that having Abraham as your father by blood, by flesh, will do you any good. For I tell you, God is able from these stones. I pointed because he must have pointed. The word these is there. So he must have been pointing at stones. He's pointed at some stones lying there. And he says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Meaning to fill the places left by you and your unbelief. By the way, I looked at a bunch of the commentators. I have a lot of commentaries on, on Matthew's gospel. I looked at a bunch of them this week because I have this, this thought, and only a few of them had this thought. I like the few who had this thought. I think this is like a little taste of, these stones are a little taste of what people group? Y'all, Gentiles, dead. God's able to raise up from stones, i.e. Gentiles, perhaps. God is able to raise up children for Abraham, verse 10. Even now the ax, we're doing some cutting here. John the Baptist is doing some cutting. Jesus is going to come along and do some more cutting. Even now the ax is laid to the root. The root is the Abrahamic covenant. The promise is given to Abraham. We're cutting away the dead wood of Israel, and we're going to leave the true, the believing, the alive wood of Israel, and we're going to start a new thing with it, and it'll be called the church of Jesus Christ with Israel, the new covenant. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, believing, following, trusting, heart for God, is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's the fire right there? It's bad. You don't want to be thrown into that fire. John says, I'm doing this and Christ is doing this. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, you'll be saved, and with fire, you're going to the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to get his winnowing fork into Israel and throw what's there up into the air and let the wind blow away the chaff and the true grain falls, and he's separating out in Israel the true believers from the not believers, and with the true believers, he started his church, amen? They were all Israelite people until you get to Acts chapter 10, and then the gospel goes to the house of Cornelius, and from there it spreads to the Gentiles, and pretty soon there's more Gentiles than Jews, and it's been that way ever since. But it's a new covenant with Israel, but an Israel that was sized down to the believing Israel. The believers were called out and became the basis for the new covenant group called the church. Listen to Matthew 8. There's a Gentile, a Roman centurion, who comes to Jesus and says, my son's back home. He's not there with us. My son's back home. Can you heal my son? Jesus says, done. He didn't even go to the house. Just said, done, your son is here. And the guy believed. Listen to what Jesus says. This is, uh, let me kind of flip my page and get the reference. There it is, Matthew 8, 10 through 12. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Slap in the face. I tell you, many will come from east and west. Who's that? That's y'all. You're west. Unless you moved here from China. You're west. Many will come from east and west, Gentiles, and recline at table. This was outrageous. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's just pause there and savor that a little bit. If you're a Gentile and you're in Christ, you're going to recline at table with Abraham. 
How cool is that? And Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus telling us there? He's telling us true Israelites only, believing Israelites only. The others will be cast out. Gentiles will take their place. Stones, in John the Baptist's words. Back to Romans 9, did you hang in with me? You back there, did you hang in with me? You over here, did you hang in with me? I need a little encouragement now and then. Back to Romans 9. So again, verse 8, Paul summarizes. This means, all this that he's been teaching. What's it all mean? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted, are reckoned as offspring. Are reckoned, are counted. That's the word, reckoned. You You ever say, I reckon? Debbie's Virginian mother lived with us till she passed away in the front room a couple years ago. And she was Virginian, man, and you would ask her, would, would, would you like a peanut butter jelly sandwich? And she'd say, I reckon I would. <laughs> she was so sweet and funny. She was hilarious. That's the idea. Do you reckon that's a, a real seat? I re- God says, I reckon. I reckon that's a real belief. They're counted as offspring, who are not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise. All right, now he's really gonna get to the core of the big question. Why have so many of them not believed? Why are they en masse in unbelief? What went wrong? What happened? New covenants with Israel, that's Israel. They're not in the covenant. What's going on here? Can you explain this? Is your gospel deficient? Is it missing something? Do you have the wrong gospel? He's going to answer. Romans 9:11. Now, you got to fasten your seatbelt. Not not cuz we're going fast, but cuz this is strong stuff. This is shepherds who will feed you with what was it? Knowledge and understanding. We're going to try and do that. Y'all hang with me. Romans 9:11. Why all of this? He gives us a purpose clause. Here's why. In order that There's a purpose for all this. There's a purpose for what's going on with God and Israel. In order that, why have those few believed, the remnant, but the bulk not believed? In order that God's purpose of election, oh no, there's that word. Yeah, it's in your Bible. Do you believe in election? Well, you got to. It's in your Bible. It's staring at you right there. It's in other places too. Why is it working this way? In order that God's purpose, he has a purpose in everything he's doing. Everything that's happening is according to his purpose. That God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, old covenant Israel, but because of him who calls. That's not the outward call. That's the inward effectual call. When God the Holy Spirit regenerates you and gives you new life and gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to love. So what's Paul saying? Why don't most believe? Here, let's, let's paraphrase it. Here's Paul's answer. Because God is absolutely sovereign in dispensing human salvation. Somebody says, well, what about the word foreknowledge over there? Well, all right, we could talk about that, but I'm not even going to get into it because I don't have all the time in the world. But look, this is the, this is the Bible's premier teaching, extended teaching passage 
on this topic. Interpret all others in light of this. That's how we do Bible interpretation. That's how we do hermeneutics. That's a hermeneutical principle. Good old uncle hermeneutics. So, it's because God is sovereign in human salvation. Really? Are you sure you're getting that right? Yeah, let's go to verse 15. For he, God, says to Moses, quote, this is from Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, time for a quiz. Going to see if you're all paying attention. I have a question for you. It is not a trick question. Keep your finger right on that verse. And here's the question. Whose will is in Romans 9.15? Are you sure? How many times? Twice. Do you see anybody else's will in Romans 9.15? Why are more of them not saved? Because it is God's will. He will save whom he will. Have mercy on whom he will. He'll have compassion on whom he will. It's all, it got, it's all to God. That's what our primary teaching text is, is telling us. Now, I don't have the time to get into this. This is an aside. The fact of the matter is, he doesn't violate a human's will. He doesn't force you into the kingdom. Well, I don't really want to go in, and he forces you in. No, your will is fallen. Your will is deadened by trespasses and sins. Your will fell with our first father's will when his will fall and you're not willing. There's none willing, no, not one, Paul in Romans chapter three. Then how could anybody be saved? Your will is precisely that thing upon which God works when he regenerates you. He comes in sovereign mercy and regenerates you, and you willingly, freely, gladly embrace Christ. You repent and turn and believe on the Lord Jesus. Why'd you do that? Because God turned your will. It's still your will. He just turned it. But you freely, willingly, he's not forcing you. You want it now. You want Christ. It starts with the will of God. Did we get it right? Well, let's go down to the next verse, Romans 9, 16. So then, strong conclusion. It depends not on human will. All right. Can you all recite that with me, please? Can we... Just to make sure we're getting it, can you read that with me? I mean, literally, read it with me. So then, it depends not on human will. Can't stop, can you? It's the word of God, it's so good. But it depends on God who has mercy. Why is this person and not that person saved? God's will. Why did I go to that church, to the pastor's study on, a, I think, Tuesday night in 1971, and I believed, and the guy next to me didn't? Why? God's will. God is absolutely sovereign in dispensing human salvation. He has mercy on whom he wills. 
Jesus taught this in many places. I can only afford the time to to take you to one of them. John chapter 12. Let's see what Jesus says about this. He's talking about Israel and their unbelief. The problem of Israel is unbelief. How come, if the gospel is the word of God, how come more of them haven't flocked to Christ? John 12, 39. Jesus. Therefore, they could not, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this is from Isaiah 6.10, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So he adds an, an, an element here and that is the hardening of hearts. Now, sometimes, like in our passage, It just plain comes out and tells you God hardens some and God draws others. In other passages, it says when God hardens somebody, it's because they've already hardened themselves and it's a judicial payback, if you will, for their hardening. Like with Pharaoh. Who who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Yes. (laughs) Because it says any number of times Pharaoh hardened his heart and it says any number of times God hardened his heart. Who hardened his heart? Well, Pharaoh did and God did. What I'm saying is this. If you harden your heart against the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you presume on the future, well, I'm young, I have lots of time, I'll believe one day, I want to sow my wild oats first. After I've sowed my wild oats, and maybe even way later, maybe when I'm old and ancient and decrepit and can't hear anymore and can't see anymore and can hardly move anymore, then I'll believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Don't presume on that. Because what you may get for hardening your heart today is a harder heart tomorrow. I hope you'll take this very seriously. What, what will I get if I harden my heart? Probably a harder heart. Don't harden your heart. This is why, to jump ship, this is almost a different sermon now. Hold on tight. This is why in Isaiah 55, 6, we read these famous, these classic evangelistic words, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. What does it mean while he may be found? What does it mean while he is near? I thought he could always be found. He could be found anytime I want. I can call upon him. He's near anytime. No, no, no. There are seasons in your life where the Lord may be found. There are seasons where where he is near. You are right now, this moment, in one of those seasons. You're in a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God is being opened to you. You're hearing about Jesus Christ and salvation through him alone. God is near in the preaching of his word. God is near in the worship of his people. And if you feel God tugging on your conscience and tugging on the strings of your soul, God is near. That's the time to seek the Lord. And if you say no, he might never come near again. He might harden your heart. So what happened to Israel? Why aren't the most of them believers? Well, ultimately, because this is God's sovereign will. Now somebody's thinking or feeling or wanting to say, that's not fair. Go ahead and say it. That's not fair. You didn't say it. Paul anticipates that, and so he speaks to you about God and his fairness. Romans 9, 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back 
to God. So what Paul's saying is, no, this really is who God is. This really is what God does. This really is what's going on here in the universe and in the world. This really is God, sovereign in human salvation, and you're nobody to answer back to him. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Picture a little dish, and the dish goes, why have you made me like this? Will, it, will that happen? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? And the answer to that rhetorical question is, yeah, he has that right. God is the potter. You are the clay. Listen to, Paul's working from Isaiah 64, verse 8. Listen to it. Here it is up there. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's what Paul's working from. So Paul is saying God made you and God made them, and the God who made you and them has absolute prerogative. He has the absolute right to make this one for one purpose and that one for another purpose. He's God. So can you help me? I'm struggling with this. Well, here's, here's a couple ways to help you. Number one is you need to be may, way more word-centered and way less feeling-centered. Don't do theology by feelings. Do theology by the word. Have you come to the word of God and you believe this is the word of God, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and I bow to it. Whatever it teaches, I will believe. It's God's word. You need to start there, not start with, well, I have feelings about... Here's another thing that helps. God is way, way, you need to come to the point, I'm going to make this a slide. You need a way, 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 three ways, bigger view of God. You're too much seeing him as one of us, but a little bigger. As like us, but a little smarter. And in your mind, in your feelings, he has to operate by our rules. Our sense of fairness has to govern what he does. My sense of fairness is going to govern what I will and will not believe about him. You're thinking like, let me see if I catch anybody on this. You're thinking like Joan Osborne's song. Somebody got it. The song goes, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Seems like a lot of people really do view God as like, he's one of us. He's just a little bigger. He's just a little smarter. What you need to understand is that he is transcendent. He is other. He is the all-wise, all-knowing. He is everywhere. He is eternal. He made you. He made all things. He's in a way different, higher category than you're imagining. Let me help you with that so you'll get that. We're almost out of time, but let's do this. Job 38. Oh, I love the latter part of the book of Job. Job 38, verses 4 and 5. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God gets a little sarcastic with Job. Is it ever right for Christians to be sarcastic? Yeah. Not excessively. Or who stretched the line upon it? Job 41 and 2. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder, don't you be a fault finder with God. That's not fair. That's not right. No, no, no. 
Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer that question. No, shall not. Job 40, verses 7 through 9, not politically correct. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? God's like hacking and whittling Job down to size. Job's like ashes on the floor when God's all done. Job 41, 10b through 11, who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And it is. That's the universe you inhabit. He's the God who made it all and you. We don't say to him, what you're doing is not fair. No, we bow and bless. He's God. So why has most of Israel not believed? Because God is sovereign in salvation. Are more Israelites ever going to believe? I believe they will. It depends on how you interpret Romans 11. But I believe there's coming a day when en masse Israelis will flock to their Savior. It'll be hard to find one of them that does not believe. And hoping to bring you back next week, that's our topic and our passage next week. Romans 11. Oh, friend, if you have any inclination whatsoever to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a crucial moment in your life. Please do not harden your heart. Turn and call on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be gracious and have mercy upon you. You will find life in him. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. Humble us before you. Pray for men and women, boys and girls downstairs, men and women in this building and anywhere else listening with us and all over the globe today where your word is opened and made known. We pray, O oh Father, be merciful to sinners. Save them. Be merciful to Israel. Draw them to their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would make us strong and sturdy New Covenant believers who understand your will and your purpose and your ways. Give us hearts that do not doubt you, but bow and trust and believe. You are our sovereign, our Lord, our God. We bow in our hearts. In Jesus' name, with thanksgiving, amen.